The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. It's good to be back with you. If we haven't met, my name is Rochelle Palmer, and I have the privilege of speaking here a few times a year. Um, My husband is the teaching pastor here. I mentioned that if you've just come to Ecclesia this summer, you've not seen him yet because he's been on sabbatical, and he has about a month left um, of rest and not having to speak any more than he absolutely wants to. So um, that's who I am. (laughs) Um, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here. Um, A couple weeks ago, my family and I uh, were sitting around our living room talking about the fact that this date was coming and that I was going to be preaching. And we're a pretty wise family, so I asked Sean and the girls kind of how they thought I should start this sermon. I had talked to them a little bit about the topic, a little bit about this series we're in of telling her story featuring women who were leaders in Scripture. And so I asked, how should I start? What do you think? And they were really helpful coming up with things like Gregorian chant and a giant game of rock, paper, scissors, and maybe Bible charades by section. So I thanked them for being so helpful. And we continued to talk a little bit and my youngest daughter finally rolled her eyes and she said, mom, it doesn't matter what we say, you're gonna do the same thing you always do. You're gonna get up there You're going to say that you think everyone is loved, that walking with Jesus is better than walking without him, and then you're going to get emotional and cry a little bit, and that's your whole sermon. (laughs) And I felt a little exposed, because she's right, and I said, okay, that's true, but I kind of wanted to mix it up a little bit. I thought I'd do something different this time. I don't want to be that predictable. And And as we talked, Sean said, you know... I know you want to do something different. But in all we talk about in preaching and all the things that are said from the pulpit, the fact that people are loved might just be the most difficult thing to actually believe. And so it might very well be the most important thing that gets said. He said, I... I believe with all, of I, all I am that Jesus walked on water. But I don't always believe that Jesus loves me. And maybe that rings true for you. Maybe the virgin birth is easy for you. Maybe a woman can bleed for 12 years and touch a piece of cloth and be fine and you get that. Maybe you really do understand that someone can die and three days later they're resurrected in a new body and it's all great. That may be really easy for you. But it may be really hard to believe that the God who did all of those things genuinely and deeply cares about you. So we decided that was a pretty good place to start. So I really do believe that walking in the way of Jesus is better than not walking in the way of Jesus. And I really do believe that everyone in here is loved with an everlasting love and that as much as we try to get out of that and to do things to make ourselves unlovable, it will never change. Let's pray. Holy God, we're so grateful for the way that you do love us. 
that you know us and that you accept us as we are in this moment. And I ask, Lord, that in our time together this morning, that it be your message and your words that are spoken and that are heard. Please minimize the distractions of the world so that we may have open ears and open hearts, that we will leave here a little more confident in what it means to live as a loved people and to be light and justice and mercy and grace in your world. And we ask these things through Jesus. Amen. So when I was in preschool and early elementary school, I loved everything about going to church. And in my family, going to church on Sunday morning actually started on Sunday night because we would eat kind of an early-ish dinner and then we had to have Saturday night baths, which were a big deal at my house because you had to take a really good bath for Sunday morning and you had to wash your hair. And I was always really good at doing that because I wanted to be done by six o'clock. Because if I was done by six o'clock, then I could go to the living room and I would sit and my mom would put my damp hair on those little uh, pink spongy rollers, right? And while she did that, I could watch The Muppets and Donnie and Marie. And I was really into Donnie. So I was very excited about those opportunities to get to watch my shows. And when my mom would roll my hair, my dad would come and he would sit on the edge of the rocking chair and he would shine his dress shoes. Then he would bring four or five ties into the room and I always got to pick the tie that he was gonna wear on Sunday morning. And then he would take a lint brush and he would brush it over his suit. And I know that many of you are confused because you decided like 56 minutes ago that you were coming today. But this is how we used to do church. When there was a commercial break, because used to you couldn't just stop your television when you wanted to, uh, we would go to my mom's closet and we would pick her dress. Then we'd go to my closet, we'd pick my dress. I would get my black patent T-strap shoes and my dress socks that had the lace around the cuff and I would set them by my bedroom door so everything was ready for Sunday morning. Then I'd go back into the living room, my mom would iron my dad's dress shirt, my dad would start reviewing sermon notes, I would dance around the room to the last songs of Donnie and Marie, and I would think about all the other little girls in the world who were also getting ready to go to church. All the people in all the places, going to different places, miles apart, but together in what we were doing. I loved going to church because it was such a place of high activity and of belonging for me. I loved going to church early with my parents, which I had to do, but I loved helping set my mom set up for her Bible class. I loved seeing if other teachers had little jobs that I could do. I loved it when my friends started to arrive and we could reconnect from the week. I liked singing in church. I'm not a great singer, but the beauty of singing in a big group is that doesn't really matter. So I love singing. And I always looked forward to that moment in church when I'd be dismissed to go to youth worship. And you know what that's like, because you just saw it, right? When we dismiss our kids to go to their spaces, they bolt out of there. And I get that, because I was like that. In youth worship, my friends and I were a part of the experience. We led the songs, we read the scripture, we helped tell the story. All of our questions were welcomed and invited. 
I also loved it when we had a potluck Sunday. And as soon as the closing prayer was over, my friends and I would scurry to the fellowship hall and we would help in the kitchen, which was really great because not only did people see you helping, you also got to see what everybody brought. And I was a seasoned church kitchen girl. By the time I was six, I could make lemonade and iced tea and those big giant igloos for everybody. But we were full participants in everything that was happening on Sunday morning. And I loved that. And then I hit middle school. And suddenly I had aged out of youth worship and I had to go to big church. And in case you've not been studying your theological vocabulary, what we're doing right here, this is big church. And big church was different because in big church, I wasn't asked to lead singing or read scripture. I wasn't invited to ask questions or participate in discussion. I wasn't asked to lead a prayer or to lead a reading. I wasn't asked to help serve communion. But I noticed that the boys in my youth group, they were being asked to do all of those things. And I was asked if I wanted to help in the nursery, which is fine work. But did you know that if you're in the nursery, you don't even get to go to church? In my youth group, if the girls wanted to practice praying out loud, we were dismissed to another room for a girls' prayer circle because at the age of 13, I couldn't pray in front of a boy. Setting up for potlucks, I noticed we'd go out and help move chairs and someone would gently ask me if I wanted to go see if they needed help in the kitchen. My all-male Bible class teachers were very serious about talking to the boys about the things they should be doing to prepare one day to be leading and serving as elders and deacons in the church. And I was told I should be preparing to be an elder's wife. Now don't feel sorry for me. I'm not telling you this to elicit sympathy. I'm telling you this because I think it's important that we understand one another's histories and one another's culture. You can't really understand me if you don't know some of this. And what I hope you will see in this story is a bit of redemption because look who's talking. And I, and I want you to know that the church has been and can be a place that injures and that hurts. And obviously that's part of my story and it may be part of yours too. But let this remind you that the church can also be a place that heals and redeems and restores. And that is also part of my story and it can be your story too. So in their male wisdom, these all-male Bible class teachers decided that my youth group was going to tackle the book of Romans. 
And so we started reading through and studying Romans together as a youth group. And here's what you need to know about my church. We were a Bible-based, Bible-believing church. And we bragged to other people that if the Bible said it, we didn't. And if the Bible didn't say it, we didn't do it. And then we opened our Bibles one day in Sunday school to Romans chapter 16. And it says this. And just a little moment on Romans, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of house churches in Rome. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the search in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my other co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. And not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Do you see it? <laughs> I was very excited to open my Bible to Romans 16. And I sat in class and I read it again. And I thought, huh. This may be my new favorite verse. Because Paul was introducing a woman, Phoebe. And Phoebe had a title. She was a deacon. And it was the same word and the same descriptor that Paul used to describe all the men he had called deacons and all the people who had partnered with him. Only this time, he was using that term to describe a woman. And then Paul described her as a benefactor. Phoebe was rich. And she was also probably single. The fact that there's no man's name mentioned in connection to her, that she's just a single entry in this letter, suggests to the first century that Phoebe was single. So that means it was all her money. It is really likely that Phoebe was a leader in the community and the church in her own right, not because of who she was married to. Women in this time who were referred to benefactors and patrons were actually highly engaged in community life. They had some restrictions. They weren't allowed to hold office, but they were key voices in things like property management and deciding how uh, citizens would be honored in the commissioning and dedicating of statues and of artwork. They were involved in developing their cities. And I wonder if this surprises you the way that it did me. Because I had been taught and then just kind of allowed to believe that women in the New Testament were fully dependent on men and had no rights. I thought they were confined to working at home, that they couldn't own property, that they couldn't have their own money, that they couldn't lead an organization that their only hope of having a voice was that their husband would speak on their behalf. But Romans 16 seems to be telling us a different story. Phoebe is a lesson about what happens when we're not honest about our history. And we must be honest about our history, about our individual histories, about our family histories, about our national history. Because how we understand history determines how we act now and it determines how we plan for the future. I wonder how many people in your life really know your history. 
Is there someone that you've really told everything to? Are there things about yourself that you keep quiet? Maybe because you think it's kind of an act of self-protection. Are, you things you, are there things you keep quiet because you're protecting an image? A few years ago, I was invited to join a covenant group of 10 women who met once a month for several hours to engage in spiritual formation and practice. And one of the practices that we engaged in early in the group was telling your spiritual story. And we were supposed to move on to other practices, but my group kind of got stuck and we didn't like the other practices, but we did like just sharing our stories with one another. So for three years, we've met monthly and we've rebelled against any curriculum and we simply just share our stories with one another. I have shared things with this group that I've never spoken aloud to anyone else. And I have said things in this group that I didn't realize I thought or believed or felt until I heard them coming out of my mouth. And everyone in the group has had that same experience. And we've talked about some dark times. If you think of the worst thing that you could possibly do or the thing you hope you would never do, it's probably been confessed in that group. And yet this amazing thing has happened when we've all been really brutally honest about who we are. There's actually more love and less judgment. There's actually more acceptance and less criticism. There's actually more celebration of each other and no jealousy. With these people who really do know all of me, that's where I feel the most free. We can't really know and love each other if we don't know and accept all of our story. And for too long, stories like Phoebe's have been dismissed. And you know what it's like to be dismissed when your partner or your children or your parents just kind of brush off something about you. Paul's specific mention of Phoebe is important because he selected her for this very special task. At the time that Romans is written, Paul knows that house churches are beginning to form in Rome, but he hasn't able to reach, he's not been able to reach the city. So he pens this letter and he asks Phoebe, his deacon and benefactor, to deliver it. And once in Rome, Phoebe read the letter at gatherings of house churches. She taught Paul's message. She probably fielded questions from the crowd. She probably clarified Paul's statements. It is really likely that Phoebe was the first person to preach on the letter to the Romans. And while all of scripture plays a valuable role in our understanding of God and life, Romans is not just any other book. N.T. Wright, who was um, just kind of uncontestedly I don't know if that's a word, but it was, um, no one would contest that N.T. Wright is the most popular and the most qualified scholar on the New Testament and on specifically the book of Romans. And he says this of the book, if I were going to be stranded on a desert island and I could take only one book, of course I would take the Bible. 
And if from the Bible I could only have one book, of course it would be Romans. No other book of Scripture has had more impact on our collective understanding of Christianity than Romans. And just in case you are not the second most known biblical scholar on the book of Romans, I'm going to tell you, I think it's more familiar to you than you think you are, than you think it is. Things like God shows no favoritism, that's from Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been made more than conquerors, overcomers in this life. All of that is from Romans. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans. Neither life nor death nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, things can hurt us, but they can never separate us from the love of God through Christ that is from Romans. Romans is kind of a big deal. And when Paul writes Romans, he's on one of his missionary journeys and he has plans to pass through Rome on his way to Spain, but he just hasn't gotten to get there yet. He really wants to talk to the believers in Rome because Rome, as you know from your knowledge of history, is this cultural center and what had happened in Rome is that the Jews had been in exile for a period of time, but they were being allowed to re-enter the city. And so the house churches that are forming in Rome are mixed of Jew and Gentile. Two groups of people with very different histories coming together trying to figure out this new gospel and this person of Jesus. And so in Romans, Paul is tackling some big doctrinal issues like salvation and justification through faith, the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel, what it means to be God's righteousness. And he wants the people to know that all of that is culminating in this new revolutionary idea that in Christ, we are one people, both Jew and Gentile. We are one family. And Phoebe is entrusted to be the carrier of this letter that has shaped Christian imagination and world culture for centuries. Just as Mary was entrusted to carry the Savior in her body. Because women have always been nurturers of Christian faith. And they've always been nurturers of culture. In the text that we read, Paul commends Phoebe and he asks the church in Rome to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. And as with many of Paul's texts, he is always concerned about how we treat and care for each other. Paul knows that Phoebe is competent to navigate travel on her own. He knows she has the resources to find her own lodging and to stay by herself. He also knows that if she stays in public lodging, it will be assumed that she's a prostitute. And that violates her dignity. So Paul wants the church in Rome to provide housing for her and to care for her. One of the reasons Paul wants to write to the Romans is to teach them about this nature of church, what it means for Christian community to function as it's designed. And that means that we share our blessings, that we're open to both giving and receiving. It's important for new Christians in Rome to practice hospitality to a stranger. And it's important for Phoebe, 
who's usually the benefactor and the one giving, to be in the position to receive. It's her opportunity to identify with what it means to be vulnerable and to be fully dependent on strangers in a place that you don't know. I have a good friend named Lynn who I met uh, when we did a Christian leadership cohort together several years ago. There was a group of about 33 of us and we met for several months and worked through a curriculum and it culminated uh, online. We're from all around the world. And we culminated in this um, summit at the end of our study. And Lynn and I had had good interactions and online discussions. So she asked if I would be her roommate at the summit. And I said, of course, that'd be great. So the first time I met Lynn in person, after we've had all these deep conversations about theology and scripture and ancient history, the first time I see her, she's walking into our hotel room and she says, huh, I thought you were gonna be older. And I looked at her and I said, huh, I thought you were gonna be taller. <laughs> and we've been really good friends ever since then. But a few years ago, Lynn, who's in her late 60s, was traveling from her home in Florida to Idaho to serve as an artist in residence. And she called me and said she's going to be stopping through Houston, wanted to know if she could see us, which of course I was excited to see my friend and for my family to get to meet her. And as she came through Houston, I was asking her all kinds of questions about her travels because like Phoebe, she's traveling alone. She's going a really long distance. And I really wanted to make sure that she knew what she was doing. So she happened to share with me that after she stayed in Houston, she was gonna get up the next morning, leave our house and drive to Abilene and stay the night in Abilene. Now, if you're new to me and Sean, Abilene is our place. We both went to Abilene Christian University. No one in this room knows Abilene like Sean and I do. There's not a lot to know, but still we're the ones that know it. Um, I'm not kidding, you could not walk into a grocery store there and find five people who don't know us or we didn't go to school with their parents or they didn't go to camp with our kids. I mean, we know Abilene. And so I said, oh, that's so great. Where are you gonna stay? And Lynn said, oh, let me show you. And she took me out to the driveway and in the back of her van, she and her friend had converted the back of her van almost to like a mini apartment. She had a twin size bed it was slightly raised, so she had like a cook stove and a little refrigerator. I mean, she had everything she needed to survive this road trip all the way to Idaho. And I said, so what is your plan? She said, oh, I'm gonna drive to Abilene. I'm just gonna pull off the side of the road and I'm gonna sleep. And I said, no, that's ridiculous. You're not doing that in Abilene, because I know half the town. I said, I will find you a place to stay. And she said, that is weird. I don't know anyone there. I said, you don't have to know someone there. I know someone there. So literally within two minutes with the help of Facebook, our friends Damon and Melody had said, of course she can stay with us, send her on. So I went and told Lynn, I said, I found a place for you to stay. You're gonna stay with Damon and Melody. They're fantastic. They have eight kids. They may not even realize you're there. And her eyes got really big and she said, I, 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 can't, I can't just stay with strangers. I said, no, you're gonna have dinner with them and then they won't be strangers. Really, it's gonna be fine. And she said, okay, they really don't mind if I park my van in their driveway and sleep there. And I said, oh no, no, they do mind that, but they don't mind if you sleep in their guest room. See, Lynn is a queer Christian and she has not, as a woman in her 60s, 
she's not always been well-received by the people that she thought would receive her well. And I said, Lynn, you have nothing to worry about. I have told these people your whole story, and they are going to welcome you. And that's exactly what happened. I told Lynn I realized that this was really strange, but the hospitality of this nature was something the church of my childhood did really well. I grew up staying in strangers' houses. I know it sounds crazy, but we would go to youth conferences in other cities and families from the church would just host us. And I remember in the summers, college interns and different students coming through to do things in our church and they would stay at my house. It took some doing, but I did convince Lynn to stay with our friends, not in their driveway, but inside their house. And she was absolutely welcomed as if she were family. Because this is what Christians do. This is who we are. In Christ, we are one people, and we don't let people sleep on the side of the road. So while the church I grew up in was not great at celebrating women, it was great at teaching me how to be hospitable. Paul is concerned as he sends Phoebe to the Romans. He wants her to be accepted, he wants her to be received, and he wants her to be heard, and Phoebe has some of the same concerns, right? She wants to be well-received, and she wants to be able to receive others. She and the Romans are going to learn that to be the people of God means being a home to the people of God. It means that we're a soft place to land, for people who have done the thing they swore they would never do. It means that we're a shoulder to cry on for people who are going through grief. It means that we're the ear willing to listen to someone's pain. It means that we're the ones who will return the text. We're the ones who will take time to sit down over coffee. We will offer to take someone to lunch. We will talk about the job opening at our office we might even allow someone else to exit in front of us in the parking lot. <laughs> We're the people who send the DoorDash gift card when we don't know what to say, but we know that everything has just fallen apart. Phoebe gives and Phoebe learns to receive. And that is what it means to be the people of God and to be the church. We receive well, and we give well. In the next few verses of Romans 16, if we read down to probably like verse 12 or 13, we would see that in mentioning Phoebe, Paul starts to think of all these other people who have been participants in his ministry journey. He begins these verses with the word greet, like make sure you greet Aquila and Priscilla, make sure you greet Mary, make sure you greet Rufus. But he's not just making a list of people to make sure you say hello to. Paul is actually sharing his community with these new believers. We should look at that text and see enthusiasm jumping off the page as Paul mentions people who have cared for him, who have loved him, who literally risked their lives for him and for the gospel. Paul is mentioning the people who have taken a chance on him 
I imagine Paul's quill just racing across the page as his mind moves faster than his hand, like he can't get all the names down fast enough. And he's saying to Phoebe and to the church in Rome, these are my people. And now they're your people too. In the words of one of our great modern prophets, Bono, one of the great privileges of this life is that we get to carry each other. And I wonder who it is for you. If you were going to write your own version of Romans 16, and you were going to mention the people who have been a part of your spiritual walk, who would they be? Who are the people that you really wish you could share with others? Who are the people who took a risk for you? Who took care of you when tragedy struck? Who just came and sat at the hospital or in the waiting room or at the house just so you wouldn't be alone? Who has partnered with you in some type of service or mission and their presence made Jesus real to you in such a new and tangible way? Who is it that every time you think of them, you're just filled with gratitude and almost disbelief because of how they have loved you? Think of that person. Let their face actually come to your mind. Can you see them? Say their name to yourself. Imagine that they're smiling at you. And remember how they made you feel. And then consider, just for a moment, that just maybe our God and the creator of the universe loves you at least that much. May our God, who is love, and our Christ, who is the peace, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and guide you always. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.